So let's look at the sex addiction side. So that's using your sexuality. We're addicted to a sexual act. So a lot of times it is masturbation because you do it singular and you're just wanting that release. Or you go online and do those one night stands, are cheating, are always going from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship. And using the porn to Mm. disengage from reality. When anytime you use your sexuality to disengage from reality, that means you could even be with your partner, but you're in fantasy and disengaging and you're using your sexuality to act like you're connected, but you're really not. Right. So there's that side, the love addiction side. I like to call it like addicted to romance, fantasy, you know, that flirting thing I talk about trying to get that unavailable person to love you. And then on the other side of that, there's sexual anorexia, where you stop being in relationships, you stop putting yourself out there, you shut down that part of you because you're scared of getting hurt. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and I got a few questions for you. Have you ever cheated on your partner? Have you ever flirted with someone that you didn't like? Uh, Have you ever used somebody for attention? Uh, Have you found yourself perhaps continuing to bounce from relationship to relationship, or maybe you feel like you just can't be happy unless you're getting attention or you're in a relationship? And if you answered yes, you may classify as being a sex or a love addict. Uh, But don't worry, the conversation today is going to help you better understand if you really are one and what you can do about it. Today's guest is Brienne Davis. Brienne is an actress, she's a podcast host, she's an author. But her real claim to fame is that she is a recovering sex and love addict. Her addiction to love began when she felt a euphoric rush after cheating on her eighth grade boyfriend, and that quickly evolved into years of debauchery. She has been sober from sex and love for nearly 12 years, and ironically, her then boyfriend and now husband was the one to help her find some local meetings to start her transformation. We unpack it all today. Brianne shares her incredible story of overcoming sex and love addiction, and the combo gets into who Brianne was in her past compared to who she is today. We discuss what it actually feels like to be a sex and love addict, what's underneath all of it, and her response to those that think love addiction is an illusion. Brianne and I chat about the differences between sex and love addiction and how to know if you would actually classify as an addict. And this actually might surprise you. We get into attention seeking and social media and the role it plays into all of this, as well as how she currently sets boundaries and handles her relationships of today, including her marriage. Of course, we also chat about how to do the work without going to meetings, if you should date during this process, and how to have healthy relationships moving forward. Brianne opens up about the moment she knew her love was real and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Brianne Davis to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Brianne, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having. I'm so excited to chat with you because you know you're in recovery from sex and love addiction, which is something we really haven't dove too much into on the podcast, and we've do- we've dove into other addictions a lot more. And I'm really excited because I think there's a lot of people that not only suffer with this, but 
they might suffer from it and they might not even know it just because like love sex relationships there are they're all part of our everyday lives like it's in front of us all the time and it's not like illegal to be in love or have sex or whatever so i know right now you've been you're you've been sober what 11 years 12 years almost 12 years yeah awesome coming up on 12 years thank you of course and i think (laughs) a good place for us to start is is really like where it all began with with your addiction and when you really first kind of had this taste where you knew that there was something kind of off. And I think it was back in eighth grade, mm-hmm. you had a boyfriend, you cheated on him. And there's most people, I would say, they would feel like a sense of shame. They would feel guilty. They'd feel horrible. But you were like, you know, I, I feel like it was like, you felt that it was this high. It was this like one of the best feelings you'd ever had in that moment. So talk about that situation. What was going on, going on in your life and why it was such a thrill uh, to cheat on your boyfriend? Oh, yeah, that was the best high in the world. Literally, I remember it clearly. I can go back. You know, my therapist told me that was the moment that I had my first hit. Just like if you talk to any drug addict or alcoholic the first time they drink or try that drug, it's you're chasing that first high. And I remember when I was in the closet at this party and with my boyfriend's best friend, and I write about this in the book and and I go into detail, but the moment he kissed me, which I never even wanted to do. Like, it's not like I went in there to then go cheat. It just happened. I I kid you not. It was like a rush of heroin or something went throughout my entire body and my entire body was on fire. And I was like, oh my God, this sense of power, having my sexuality, being in control, getting this person to turn their back on their best friend. It was just this overwhelming sense of, I love to control people and use my sexuality with that. And I think that started because I was already so empty and incomplete with, you know, the background I had, the trauma I had and searching for that outside thing to fill me because I Mm. already felt so inadequate. I mean, everybody feels inadequate at eighth grade, right? Like nobody's like, yay, I feel the best I've ever felt. So yeah, I just took that high and I've just been doing it ever since. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of cool. Not I don't want to say it's cool, but it's interesting that in that moment you had this you had that feeling where you kind of almost knew that it was like this rush or this high and that like you knew mm-hmm. that it was like something that was probably going to take off in, into something else. I don't know if you knew where it was going to go, but there's a lot of people that would have just done that, not even thought twice and just moved on to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And then not even know like what was really going on. But yeah. before that was your, what was your family situation? Like were your parents together? Did you experience, you, you alluded to, you alluded to trauma. Did you experience like a deep level of trauma that made you feel inadequate or hurt your self-esteem that kind of led to that moment? Oh my God. There's so much. <laughs> That's like the, the million dollar question that took eight over eight years of therapy and working the 12 steps and all that stuff that I did in sex and love addicts anonymous. But when I looked back and really looked at why, what I did the things that I did is because I didn't come up from a family that modeled a healthy marriage, what healthy relationships look like. There was like arguments all the time. And, and I never saw my parents hold hands or kiss. So when I looked at commitment and marriage, it was like, Ooh, I don't want that. They look miserable and unhappy. And then at the same time that I realized, you know, I had a molestation I didn't remember about when I was six years old that I blocked out of my memory, which I found through therapy, doing all that work, it was uncovered. And I just think, you know, going through a turbulent household 
not, you know, having dyslexia, never feeling like I fit in school, hating school because I struggled so much with it. And then when I grew into my womanhood at such a young age and saw older men hitting on me, it just was this thing. Like I feel so powerless and this one sense of thing that I had, I felt power over. So I just went full force into that. I was never into drinking or drugs. I didn't like to be controlled. I liked to control other people. And on top of it, I was a latchkey kid. So I would come home and just watch movies and movies way out of my age range. Like Romeo and Juliet was my favorite movie at eight years old. Like, isn't that insane? Like two young people at 13 sleep together less than 48 hours, then kill themselves over each other. Like that is not a movie a young kid should see. And I just, I was inundated with these, you know, love is everything. Falling in love is the best feeling. You have to be able to like die for your partner, find your soulmate, someone to fix you. And it's just, I just got inundated with that. And then becoming an actress was like, Mm. my therapist said I picked the worst career for my addiction, like to become someone else and, and to act out all these fantasies. So yeah, I think I was just primed. I just was primed for addiction. Addiction runs in my family and I just went full force sex and love about it. So what ended up happening after you end up cheating on your boyfriend and it becomes this Mm -hmm. huge rush, this huge high from, from you, this huge rush, this Mm -hmm. huge high for you. I'm assuming you guys broke up after that. He find out or no, you didn't find out. Okay. He didn't find out for a really long time. I think a year later he found out and you know, that's when the shit hit the fan (laughs) and you know, I got, you know, called a whore and all that stuff in school and everybody found out. And then, so I broke up with him, which I was horrible at breaking up. I, one of the main things with sex and love addicts, they hate breaking up with people because we don't have the words. We don't have boundaries. We don't have tools. So we would stay in relationships that ran their course, you know, or we date unavailable people trying to make them available. And as soon as they're available, we're like, ah, too much intimacy. So I just kept going from relationship to relationship. And sometimes they would overlap. You know, I'd be have one foot out the door of one relationship while I was starting another one, or I'd be flirting and intriguing with friends, guy friends. I was like, I, every ounce of my energy was just give me attention, give me validation, show me I'm loved mirror for me, my worth. It was exhausting. I mean, just talking about now, I'm like, how did I even survive and like brush my teeth and, <laughs> and have a career? Cause I just wasted so much time trying to get people to fill me. Right. Ugh. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is tough too, is like, once you, I think experience that initial rush, that initial high, it's not like in that moment you could say like, Oh, like I'm just going to stop being around people. Or I'm going to stop having relationships because it's all there. And I think where yeah. I want to go now is like, when was it that you knew that? Okay. Like I really have a problem. Like, did you know that? Like, when you were a teenager, did it, did it happen when you were an adult? Did it happen when some of the things happened to you when you were in Hollywood? Like when, when was that moment for you? And like, what led up to that? Oh, I wish I could say I found out really fast. You know, the first time I acted out was, you know, in eighth grade and I did not hit my bottom till my late twenties. So that was a good 10 years 
12 years of just going from person to person, looking for my person to fix me, being with someone for a year, then that butterfly feeling wears off, right? You know, that first kiss, that first hug, that first sexual encounter wears off all that stuff. And then I'd be like, oh, this person, they're not keeping that jolt. We call it a catapult, right? Like that jolt up. So then you move to somebody else. And so I was always doing that. And it it was getting confusing for a while because then I started picking people I didn't even like. Like I would be, I was on location flirting and intriguing with this person that I didn't even like as a person. And I was like, wait a second. Like I care about my boyfriend at home. I don't want to cheat on him, but my mentor in my acting world just died. And I found myself two days later starting to flirt, starting and intriguing. If anybody's listening, it's like a bump up from flirting. It's like giving out your number, acting available, saying you don't have a boyfriend or you're not committed when you do. So that's intriguing. But yeah, I just was like, whoa, something is wrong here. I can't be in my late twenties being like, it has to, it can't be, it can't be everybody else. There has to be something, the common denominator is me, right? We always say that, like, I'm the one that's creating all this drama around my life. And I remember being on location, shooting a movie and flirting with someone I didn't like. And I was looking at a, in a holiday in mirror in the middle of the night in the dark. And I had that dark night of the soul moment where I was like, oh my God, am I going to be doing this till I'm 80 years old? Am I constantly going to be looking for other people's energy to complete me. And I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I called a friend and it's like, don't you have a therapist that's in our SAG insurance? And she gave me the information. And when I got back from location, I went to see her. And I just remember that moment. I was telling her all this stuff that I had done and had happened to me. And she looked at me and she was like, hmm, I know you have you I, you have a secret. And I don't know what it is yet, but you do remind me of one of my other clients that's a high class prostitute. And I was like, "Wait, what?" I was so taken aback because I was like, first of all, I've never had a one night stand. I haven't had many sexual partners. It's not like I was out there just fucking everything. Oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss, but it's not yeah, like I was fine. doing that, you know. And she said no, and she goes, "Oh, I know what it is. You're a sex and love addict." And I was like, "No." that's a guy thing. That's like, I don't, I'm not married. And then I cheat on my partner and then looking for an excuse. And yeah. So that was the beginning of the end. I Mm. just couldn't do it anymore. Wow. So you were strictly like, you would say like, like love addict. You, you really weren't like the, the sex addict where you No, I was a sex addict too. Okay. You see, that's the thing. People always think a sex addict is you like go and you'll sleep with anybody. That's not true. A sex addict, you can use your sexuality to manipulate and control. So you could actually be in a marriage with somebody and manipulate them with your sexuality to get what you want. And you're a sex addict, any place you use your sexuality. So, you know, that could look at masturbation too. That could be looking at porn that one night stands, you know, going from relationship to relationship to relationship is what I did. I was always so disconnected from my sexuality and using it as a tool. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, what I know the trajectory of like a lot of addictions. You can kind of see like what happens. Like, for instance, of a, for a drug addict, maybe somebody who uses heroin. Maybe they start off smoking pot, and they do coke, and they sell coke, and they smoke crack, they sell crack, they they do heroin, and and that I mean, not that that not that that happens to everybody, but it's pretty common yeah. with with sex and love addicts. Like, you had your first high, if you will, when you were in eighth grade when you cheated on your boyfriend, and then things kind of ended when you went to your first meeting and. 
um, you were on set flirting with that, that person that you had no interest in. Like, was there anything that happened in between that? Like you could just tell things were escalating and things were starting to get really bad. Yeah. I mean, it's a progressive brain disease, so it gets worse and worse and worse. And you, you notice it by the partners you pick Mm. and the chances you take of almost getting caught and the situations you put yourself in. So it was just, it just kept getting worse. Like the person I picked, there'd be more drama. Any, and I say if the, anybody has drama in their life, not even with their like lovers or partners, but family members, relationships, I just realized there was drama every relationship of my life. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, you know, I put myself in a couple of situations where I could have been murdered or nobody knew where I was. And it was just like those things over and over again. And yeah, it, it's, it's just like a chemical addiction, just with people, like you said, right. right. It's all for love. Right. And I think mm-hmm. there's probably people listening to this that are addicted to love. They're addicted to people and they don't even know it. So yeah. you've been you know, sober for almost 12 years from sex and love addiction. What do you think are like the telltale signs of somebody's listening to this that, that may actually surprise people that to let them know if they're addicted to sex and love? Well, that's what I said. Do you keep finding yourself going from relationship to relationship, looking for that perfect partner? Do you keep going back to that bad relationship? That's a huge one. That person that just cannot show up for you, or you keep going back and it's just not healthy. Like is your relationships in your life not healthy? I realized after doing all this work, I was addicted to my friendships. I would use my friendships to give me self-worth. So if I was having a bad day, for instance, I would call a girlfriend and keep her on the phone for 30 minutes, telling her all my drama and problems. And I would get off with her and realize she didn't make me feel better. And I would pick up the phone and Mm. do it again. And I found myself one time doing that four times in a row. And I just had this light bulb moment where I was like, oh my God, I use every single person in my life. None of my relationships in my life are healthy. And that's what it's about underneath the sex addiction, underneath that addiction to fall in love, you know, fantasy, going into fantasy, going in like that intrigue, being constantly on the search. If you walk outside, always looking for someone to hit on you, say how great you look, those kind of things are really big key, like issues or, you know, going, being a narcissist, like using people yourself, because you usually swing back and forth, but underneath all of those is that fear of abandonment, fear of not being loved, fear of intimacy is a huge one. Do you find yourself in a relationship? And if it's getting too intimate, do you shut down and push away? That's a big one uh, for sex and love addicts. Mm. Yeah. I mean, those are some like telltale signs it seems like and and i think it's there's things that a lot of people struggle with right you see Mm -hmm. a lot of people jump from relationship to relationship you see a lot of people staying in relationships a lot longer than they should you see people who are are afraid to get close to somebody and i think as a result what happens is they get addicted to that new person like they get addicted to the idea of just going from person to person person to person and 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 so like another question i had along those same lines is again I, i really haven't to have a lot into this is like, how do you know if somebody's addicted to love and not like attention, like where they're not just seeking validation from somebody and it's really not like love? Well, that's the thing. As part of sex and love addiction, one of them is 
being an attention addict, being a validation addict. So it's all, it's such a broad range, sex and love addiction. Everybody's is everybody's patterns are so different. That's why it makes this addiction so hard to define because what one person does isn't the same thing that I do. And we each have our individual bottom lines. So for me, you know, one of the main ones is I can't text, talk, or email any man whatsoever. I wouldn't even, the first two years of my recovery, I wouldn't even make eye contact with a waiter. You know, so there's these things that we each have to do to have our sobriety. So it's really hard to define, but being an attention addict, if you go online and looking for validation with likes, like social media is really amplifying this addiction and younger kids right now are struggling with intimacy, they're disconnected in relationships because they're always looking outside of themselves for that attention, that like, that hits, that. So it's a big part. Being an attention addict usually is being a love addict and usually fluctuate, you know, from being obsessed with love or shutting down. So I think it's the same thing, honestly. A lot of people disagree with me about that, but I just see a lot of people in this disease have both aspects, attention and the love addiction part. I, I think it comes back to this void that, that needs to be filled. Right. And yeah. That empty hole. It, right. Yeah. <laughs> and people that, who don't love themselves will seek it from others. And in, in many cases, they'll, they'll try to find love in all the wrong places. And some of that comes from, like you said, social media yeah. validation, maybe you're texting like 15 different people because you're bored and just seeing yeah. who responds or you're on dating sites when you have no intention of actually dating anybody. You just want to see who, who likes you. I forget there was somebody, I was working with a dating coach like a while ago, mm-hmm. just because I was like always intrigued on how I could be better at picking partners or what have you. And there was, I forget the exact percentage of people that were just strictly on dating sites just for attention or to yeah. see if there was a better partner out there or to, just to get some validation for that day. And it was, I was like, wow, like I was kind of naive. I was like, oh, I figured that if people were on dating sites, they actually like want to date. date. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wish. No, the humans, we are tricky, tricky little guys. Like we will want, you know, tell me how great I am. Tell me you're with me and then go back and just n- be completely in fantasy. And I think fantasy is a big aspect of this disease and this society. Right. And we're just amplifying it. I mean, they said 3 million of you, the U S are sex and love addicts and 38% of them are women. And that statistic was God, like 10, almost 10 years ago. And I, I just tell you from my view, it is just exploded and amplified. There are so many sex and love addicts and nobody talks about it because there's so much stigma and shame with being addicted to people because we have to deal with people every day. So yeah, I'm not surprised people are going on just to get that validation. So what kind of boundaries have you had to create for yourself with the rise and popularity of social media and just as your popularity has grown with being an actress, the book, the podcast and everything else you're doing so that you kind of can, you know, work the most ideal recovery program you can. I mean, outside of, I know you're active in the 12 step community, but outside of that, what are some other things that you've had to do? We will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor. I think we all know by now the importance of optimizing your mindset and using it to attract what you want in life. But the problem can lie with the how, like how do you do it? And so with that said, internationally recognized therapist Marissa Peer is offering my listeners a special price for her 21-day abundance challenge. 
I have had a chance to look through the program and can personally say that this challenge is loaded with tons of valuable content. I believe that if you put forth your best effort into this challenge, you will feel rejuvenated, optimistic, and confident at the end. She will help you overcome your deepest limiting beliefs so that you can live the life that you deserve, and you will get things like meditations, training videos, previously recorded Q&As, and most importantly, access to a community of like-minded souls to help hold you accountable. This challenge is valued at well over $1,000, but she has heavily discounted it to just $99, and you can actually save an additional 25% by entering the code DOUG at checkout. And if for some reason you aren't satisfied, she is offering you a full refund if you aren't satisfied within the first 10 days. So go to www.marissapeer.com forward slash Doug. Again, it's www.marissapeer.com forward slash Doug to learn more about the incredible program and join the challenge to live more abundantly. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 25% off. Now back to the show. Well, I, I go to more meetings now than I did almost 12 years ago. I go to a meeting every morning and I try to do one every night. You know, I meditate. I try to every day. That's my worst aspect. I'm not really great at it, but I do a gratitude list. I pray to something bigger than me. Everything I do is about service. So if I'm on social media, it's to be of service. I'm answering people's DMs. I'm trying to put the word out there about sex and love addiction because so many people in my life have died over this addiction. So many people I know have committed suicide over relationships, lost their sobriety and a chemical addiction. I have a lot of friends in jail for this addiction and people that are murdered. I mean, watch a dateline. It's always about love triangles. So I take this very seriously. So when I go on social media, I try to make it about other people and not me. The moment I make it about me or the book about me or the podcast about me, even my career, I had to get to a place where if I'm taking a job, I'm a worker among workers. It doesn't matter if my face is on the billboard. It doesn't matter how many lines I have. You know, being a working actress for 20 years, it's just like, it's a job. It doesn't fill me. Nothing fills me anymore. No new car, no house, no money in the bank, nobody giving me attention, no number of likes or new follow. None of that matters. It really doesn't matter. I can't put that, sh- that shit on my gravestone. So how I try to go about everything in social media is the hardest one is to be of service. That's all I'm doing it for. I'd never wanted to break my anonymity. I never wanted to write a book. I never wanted to start a podcast, but it's given me this sense of something bigger than me and my community. Cause SLA, the 12 step program, we keep it a secret. It's even said in our literature, like don't talk about it. And for me, I'm like, why not talk about it? People need help. And people in AA that have 30 years has never heard of slaw. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous is the, 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 you know, the, the broken down house down the street. Nobody wants to go to. And they say slaw is like the shack in the back. Like nobody wants to go to. So I'm just doing everything to be of service, but boundaries. I don't get on social media that long. I have to give my phone to my husband most of the time because you know, I can get obsessive too. So I just have to have really tight boundaries about what I'm doing, who I'm communicating with. And I still don't have a lot, any guy friends. People think that's crazy, but I'm too, I'm an addict. I'm slippery slope. And if I start like talking to guys, then I'm starting to flirt. Then I'm starting. And before you know it, I, I could be acting out on my husband, on my child. And I just have no interest in that living that life anymore. Boundaries, huh? That's like one of the things. It's one of the things that's 
probably the most <laughs> one of the most important things you can have in life, and it's one of the hardest things to do. And I don't think it's just hard to to set boundaries. I think setting boundaries, I think, is a little is easier, but what's yeah. really makes them hard is upholding the boundaries. Yeah, with crazy people, right. humans are crazy. But the moment you start setting boundaries, people freak out. Because they're used to you. They're almost comfortable. Even if you're acting out addict, they are comfortable with how you are. When I started setting boundaries with my family, with friends, with my partner, it's torture because nobody wants to change. And it's like you don't have control over them changing. All you have control over is you changing. And then everything around you starts to change. People go away. Family relationships get better or you take a break from family. You know, it's just boundaries are the best thing in the world. I love them. (laughs) So what kind of work, like how do you navigate like your marriage now being somebody Mm -hmm. you've been in recovery for, you know, almost 12 years from sex and love addiction? Like how do you navigate and make sure you're, you're having like a healthy relationship with your husband, given everything that you've gone through in your past? Well, that isn't that the million dollar question? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's in recovery too from alcohol, right? Yes. So that kind of yes. kind of helps that he understands like addiction and, and the program yeah. and everything. Yeah, I got really lucky. You know, my God or my higher power picks somebody that understands if my addictions with people has nothing to do with him. And I tell everybody, I, I work with a lot of couples. I've worked with, you know, been a sober coach for people. And the number one thing I say is you can be the most perfect partner. And if you're with a sex addict or a sex and love addict, it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with you. So my husband luckily knew that it has nothing to do with him. Just like his addiction has nothing to do with me. You know, he has 32 years in recovery. So our house is really, it's a, it's like a recovery haven, our house. We say the serenity prayer. My three-year-old son knows it. You know, we both get on meetings at night. We over-communicate. We, we try to say things in I statement where we're like, this is how that made me feel. This is how I, it's, it's triggering this. So we really try to be gentle with each other and understand that we're both two addicts in recovery. We base everything. God is first. Our program is first, then each other, then our son. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the most beautiful way, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, what we do it, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Cause if not, I'm out, out there snorting some dude that I don't even like, like (laughs) what's the option? Like either I'm with someone I love and care about and, it's a new type of intimacy. I always thought sex was like the whole cake, they say, you know, but sex is just the icing of the cake. It's not to get high. It's not to get high off someone. It's intimacy. And yeah, so it's been a work in progress, but I'm really proud of our commitment to each other and our programs. Mm. That's awesome. I mean, Mm -hmm. I got, I have to imagine that when you're somebody who, has had, I mean, I don't know how many relationships you've been in, but let's just say you've been in 20 relationships. I'm just making this up. 13. Okay. 13. 13. You can find out more in my book. 13 relationships. 13 relationships that have all been rocky or for Mm -hmm. the most part, toxic and unhealthy that when you get into a a healthy one, there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs, there's going to be challenge because you're now having to relearn and unlearn a lot of those unhealthy patterns that we, you spent a good bit of your life doing so. So it really helps. I think that you have somebody who's used to working on himself and understands addiction and understands like the journey uh, of like recovery, right. Where a lot of people, they don't, they don't have that, that ability. And so I think it's awesome. You definitely like, you know, won the lottery with your current marriage, but But here's the thing. We were willing to let go of each other. That's the beautiful thing. 
we are two separate people walking this path together. We do not complete he- each other. I cannot fix my husband. If he's having a bad day, I cannot take on his bad day. And I think a lot of couples, and we did too, we enmeshed together. You become a closed relationship instead of staying open. And we talk about a closed relationship in the program where, you know, it's insular, you know, we, you, you, a lot of friends are cut off. You stop hanging out with people. You stop having different interests and all those things. And we are just two people standing next to each other. If he left me today, and this is the most important, it pisses some people off. If my husband left me, I would be okay. You know, I'd be sad. I'd be devastated. I'd go through a withdrawal. I'd go through a pain of the breakup. But he does not complete me. He does not give me my self-worth. He is not my soulmate. And that's the number one thing when I wrote about in the book is like, I'm my own fucking soulmate. I'm the one that lives and dies with myself. I'm the one that is born by myself and I die by myself. And so I better love myself the most. I better do self-care. I better take care of my needs. I better work on myself, be a better person for this world, and then stand next to somebody that's doing the same. So he's would let me go too if it made, you know, if we were willing to let go of each other. I think that was the number one thing that got us through our recovery together. Right. No, that's, that's awesome. And I think, you know, I, I guess I could see people getting upset when you say you'd be okay when, if he left you, but I think at the end of the day, like that's part of the codependency trap that people get yeah. into where they feel that they're nothing without their partner, or they feel that if their partner left them, that they would crumble. And sure. Would you be sad? Of course. Would it be heartbreaking? Absolutely. I would have to go my grieving process. Right. But you'd, you'd move on and you would survive just like every other, through every other hardship you've been through in your life. I mean, it's just the way life is. And so I want to get into a a topic that I think is a little, can be a little touchy where, where people people (laughs) will say like sex and love addiction is bullshit and it doesn't Mm. exist. And it's a crutch. This isn't me, but I'm just saying I've heard people say this where yeah. it can be a crutch or an excuse as to why somebody cheats, as to why somebody continues to do promiscuous activities in a, re- in a relationship. So what mm-hmm. do you say to somebody when they, if they come up to you and they say, I think it's all BS? Oh, that happens on a daily basis. <laughs> just so you know, I get those DMs all the time, but then I get a thousand other DMs that says, oh my God, that's why I've been repeating these patterns. Oh, I've had this trauma. Oh, my mom used to do that. Or my dad used to do it. And what I say is love and sex give off the same endorphins that alcohol does or cocaine does. It's the same high. And if you think about it, then the first thing as a young child you interact with is relationships. So of course you can get addicted to them. You can get addicted to anything. You can get addicted to cupcakes. You can get addicted to spending money at a casino and pulling down that slot machine. You can get addicted to anything. Netflix, if you're sitting there watching Netflix too much, there's probably a way you are trying to be out of reality. So sex and love is the number one way people try to escape their reality and going to get attention and validation and flirting and their self-worth. So that's a bunch of BS to me. And it really upsets me that doc, a doctor recently came out and sex addiction wasn't real. And I'm like, how is that even possible if it's re- releasing the same endorphins in the brain? So right. that's what I have to say to them. You know, it's the first, you, you usually have relationships first and people get addicted to relationships. So of course you can get addicted to sex and love. And I, and I think I'm not, I'm not passionate at all about that. If you didn't get that tone, <laughs> um, I do think that addiction in a way is addiction and you get the same euphoric mm-hmm. feeling in many cases from an intense, passionate relationship. 
or sex yeah. or whatever that you do from like doing a line of Coke, right. Or doing yeah, it's oxy the same thing. or, you know, getting drunk or whatever. I mean, it's very, very similar in the feelings. And then I think it's all about like habits and, and behavior. And if you get used to that, like if you get used to like chasing after that next person and that's what fills you up and that becomes like your high or your rush, then that that's what you, I think a lot of times what people get addicted to is filling that void. And that can come from anything that can come from it money, from anything. food, sex, you know, drugs, drugs. alcohol, relationships. Well, usually under, yeah. And usually under any chemical addiction set sits like the ACA, the codependency. And then underneath that addiction is usually a sex and love problem that you just have trouble with relationships and boundaries in a general level. And underneath that, that's where that lack of self-worth, self-love, self-esteem, all that stuff sits. So we as addicts and people do not want to feel our feelings, right? And we, the only feeling I'm interested in is euphoria. So I will get addicted to anything that gives me euphoria. So of course people can get addicted to sex and love. Cause that's like that high of falling in love. You remember that feeling? Like the first time you fall in love, it's like the best high in the world. Right. And so what do you think is the difference between sex addiction and love addiction? Because when I think of sex addiction, I think of like porn, I think of I think of just like what that, that urge to want to just have sex with somebody one night stands, but yeah. you know, you've kind of opened my eyes and you've, you've made it seem a little bit differently where really sex addiction can be just using your sexuality as a way to get attention. So like mm -hmm. if a guy is posting like, I don't know, shirtless pics or, or whatever, just to get attention and using my Our bikini pics, yeah. women do right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah. that can be a sex. So what in your experience, like in all the work you've done, all the people that maybe you've sponsored and you've seen come yep. through the program, like what are the biggest differences between sex and love addiction? Well, I like to break it down as simple as possible because people make it really complicated. So let's look at the sex addiction side. So that's using your sexuality. We're addicted to a sexual act. So a lot of times it is masturbation because you do it singular and you're just wanting that release. Or you go online and do those one night stands or cheating or always going from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship and using the porn to mm. disengage from reality. When anytime you use your sexuality to disengage from reality, that means you could even be with your partner, but you're in fantasy and disengaging and you're using your sexuality to act like you're connected, but you're really not. Right. So there's that side, the love addiction side. I like to call it like addicted to romance, fantasy, you know, that flirting thing I talk about, trying to get that unavailable person to love you, and then on the other side of that, there's sexual anorexia, where you stop being in relationships, you stop putting yourself out there, you shut down that part of you because you're scared of getting hurt. And underneath all those addictions is that fear of getting hurt, that fear of abandonment, fear of intimacy. It's a huge one, fear of intimacy and low self-worth. Like we don't love ourselves. So how can we love someone else when we don't love ourselves? So really the program and this work is about finding your own self-love, mm. filling yourself before going to other people and looking for it. So along I those hope same, I broke that down well. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> along those same lines, there's a lot of people that that date out of loneliness. There's a lot of mm -hmm. people that date because they're feeling insecure or they need that validation. Or they're bored. They're bored. That's a big they, one. they date out of boredom. Yeah. Boredom, loneliness, kind of very similar. But I, can somebody like say somebody just went through a breakup or somebody mm -hmm. who's feeling pretty low about themselves are pretty insecure, right? They're feeling like, you know, low self-esteem. They're feeling like, oh my gosh, am I going to ever find love? And they're feeling that, that feeling of impatience. 
Oh yeah. Uh, can, is there a way that they are able to at the same time work on themselves to feel more secure and date, or is that going to set themselves up to potentially fall deeper into love addiction or become a love addict? Or can, can somebody like really do the work on themselves and then begin to date in a way that's healthy? And then, you know, hopefully over time they become more secure and they can have a healthy relationship. No, I would not advise anybody if they're in that state to start dating, because what you're doing is probably taking that baggage from your last relationship and the relationship before and before and bringing it into the new one and repeating the patterns. When I did my four step and I talk about this in my book, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, I had 176 people on my four step. I so kid four, you not. fourth step is the list is, of resentments. resentments yeah. Yes. And a lot of them are relationships. And I realized I was living the same pattern over and over and over again. And I got to number 106. And I remember throwing my papers against the wall and saying to my sponsor, I'm just repeating myself. It's the same thing over and over again. And she's like, yeah, you, you put a bag over people's heads. It wasn't about them. It was always about you. And that's what I say. You need to have a break because you don't understand the patterns that you keep repeating. So if you keep finding yourself going with the same type of people or they're getting worse, or you're like, I'm in this situation again, how did I get in this again? You know, that frustration, that impatience, I would say, take a break. There is this thing about taking a break, looking at yourself, looking at the patterns, looking at your character defects you keep leaning on. For me, it is impatient, you know, martyrism, being a victim, jealousy, envy, you know, egotistical, all those things that we do and we take into a relationship and we're unaware of. So I always tell people, take a break, work on yourself. It is so much easier working on yourself alone than being with somebody. Right. And then we're not, I'm not saying give up on people forever. That's the, that's the hard part about the program with, you know, AA, or if you give up alcohol or drugs, you can, it's black and white. You just never do drugs again. You never drink. You just, that, it's that simple, but with sex and love addiction, you then have to create these boundaries, create the structure around yourself so that you start dating healthily. You look at, oh, I shouldn't be texting them, you know, at this time of day and, and staying on the phone for over an hour or having a two hour date or whole, you know, kissing on the first date or sleeping on the first date, like, oh, I need to wait till the fifth date and see if I even like this person to then maybe kiss them or have a conversation. Like, are we together or are we seeing other people? So it's like setting yourself up to win, setting yourself up to take care of yourself because normally we don't know how to take care of ourselves and what we need. So I, that's how I usually, I don't advise anybody to do this work while trying to date. It's really difficult. I People crash and burn constantly. So what does the work look like for somebody? And take out, maybe maybe somebody doesn't want to go to, to SLA or whatever. Yeah. And maybe they just want to take some time to work on themselves because you're right. Like they're an AA and NA, like there's no moderation with, with drugs or alcohol. No, it's like, you're just... <laughs> like your total abstinence, right? But with with love and sex, like, you know, it's yeah. going to happen more. So obviously like lo- you're going to have probably more love, I, w- I would think in, in your life than, than sex. It's like, you're going to, you know, me might have, you know, be attracted to more people and go on more dates Then you're not just going to sleep with them automatically. Right. So I'm sure that'll be more common, but along yeah. those same lines, like let's just say you're somebody who goes from relationship to relationship to relationship. And you're, you know, by definition, maybe have a slight, you know, small, like love addiction. And then you're like, okay, 
it's time to practice the pause and then put myself into a position where I can go back into that arena where I was addicted once. Like, like, so what are some of the things that you would advise someone to do, or maybe you've done for you? I mean, I know you talked about meditation boundaries, like you don't talk Mm -hmm. to other men, like, but say there's a, a young man or young woman or an older, I mean, it doesn't, I guess age doesn't matter. That's really, age does that. not matter. Yeah. We have 80, <laughs> I've, I've, I've helped 80 year olds to 20 year olds. Age right. does not matter. But I love this question because this, you know, a 12 step program doesn't always work for everybody. I work with a lot of people that are not in 12 step programs. They are not interested in going in a room and saying, hi, I'm blah, blah, blah. I'm a sex and love addict to a bunch of strangers. I get it. So when I work with people, I always have their pause moment and I love you using the word pause it's okay so let's say 90 days you're not going to get involved with anybody for 90 days and it's always good to find someone to work with you can't really do this work on your own because our brains are are not making the best decisions if your brain kept putting you in that relation that type of relationship your brain cannot get you out of that relationship so always try to find a community a therapist someone to talk to you know, reach out to even me and I can give you some information, but you know, that 90 days, take a break, get off social media, stop talking to your guy friends or girlfriends that you realize you use, even though you're not interested in, you know, don't go back to that person that you've been pining over for 90 days, block them. That's a big one, block them (laughs) or get off social media completely. A lot of people have to get off social media because it's too triggering with love addiction and sex addiction. Stop masturbating for 90 days because a lot of people masturbate when they're feeling their feelings. Let Mm. those feelings come up. Be uncomfortable, be okay being uncomfortable for those 90 days. And then something magically happens after you hit the 90 day mark. If you can make it to that time, it's, it's really hard. And if you slip, restart your time. It's okay. Like, don't be hard on yourself. You're, you're trying something new. You're breaking generational habits usually because it goes back generations, how you used, how you learned how to be in a relationship through your parents and their parents. So give yourself a break, have compassion for yourself. But that 90 days, something happens where this release can occur. If you really do it and you are like, okay, I'm not going to die over feelings. I'm not going to die without that person. Maybe I don't need to get on social media that much. Maybe I, you know, go on a date and don't reveal all my trauma and trauma bond. Maybe I keep it light and polite. So it's a bunch of different things you can do to give yourself the tools to healthy date. Right. And I, and I think having a pause is, is phenomenal yeah. because I think th- there's no better feeling than being intentional with being alone and really working mm-hmm. on yourself because yes. it, it far outweighs feeling alone when you're around the wrong types of people. I mean, we've all been there where we're like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, bored. I'm just going to go out on a date. And you end Mm -hmm. up like going out on a date with somebody, you know, you shouldn't be going on a date with. And you come home and you're like, why the heck did I do that? Like, yeah. And then you become obsessed with them too. And you're like, wait, I didn't even like them. (laughs) That's happened so many times. And you're like, what was I? Ah, (laughs) I mean, I think the the thing that that helps me and, and help and really can help a lot of people is just do like healthy things on a daily basis to help you feel secure with yourself. Exercise, yeah. nutrition, who you spend time with, journaling, gratitude, meditation, like like find what works for you because I feel like the more you can up level your your sense of security in yourself and self-esteem, the less you'll tolerate with like the BS that you were tolerating when you were feeling 
insecure with yourself, right? Like, cause I think we make our decisions in many cases based on the way we feel about ourselves. And that if we're feeling like crap about ourselves, we're going to be okay with dating crappy people when they don't treat us well or what have you. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to agree to disagree with that. What you just said, I definitely think that's important once you get through the withdrawal process of being in bad relationships. See, if you go into, I'm going to exercise and do this work on myself, there's still something you're trying to do instead of just be, because Mm. we're always trying to do it's this toxic positivity is what I find that can be really bad because when you're going through withdrawal in relationships, you have to go through withdrawal. You're going to feel like a part of you is dying. It's actually worse than I had someone come in and said it was they could get off heroin, but they can't get off her. Like it is the worst withdrawal going through and withdrawal from people. And I'm telling you, it's okay if some days you can't get out of bed and you don't understand why you can't stop crying. I had nine months of withdrawal, nine months where I cried every day and I did not know why. And it was because all that trauma, all those feelings I was stuffing down using people needed to come out. And then I had this moment where one day it was just gone. And then I could start doing the work, really looking at it, working out, showing up at meetings, showing, you know, doing all that healthy stuff. But there's this moment you have to give yourself the grace to just grieve the loss of your old life, your old self, that old pattern. And I think people have a really hard time allowing that, but it's, it's necessary for this process of healing. So you're saying, you know, before taking action, I guess, to, to recalibrate yourself as like just being okay with the discomfort and feeling the feelings and, and just allowing those emotional processes to just kind of move through. Yeah, no, I can, I can definitely see that. I'm not saying that, you know, you shouldn't do that. I was just like, I guess, thinking out loud to like, okay, like what are some things I mean, yeah, no, I, I love you, everything I, you said and that all that stuff was important. I just think people forget the process of, of feeling their feelings and feeling uncomfortable. Like you're going to feel uncomfortable for a little while right? and you have to be okay with that. Right. Don't try to yeah. out process the uncomfortability. Right. And I think people do that. Right. And yes. I, but, but I think, unfortunately, people do that negatively where they'll just go and try and date somebody else or they'll exactly. do it with food, another mm-hmm. substance or the blame Shopping. game. Like, like one of the biggest things, it's, it was an eye opener for me when, because it's easy to sit there and blame your partner and say, oh, they did this, they did that. And so oh, yeah, said that's to the me, best thing. They were like, Doug, like, what was it? You have to ask yourself, what was it about you that allowed yourself to stay in this relationship? Like that's, and that's a yeah. hard question to ask yourself when you have to look yourself in the mirror and ask mm-hmm. yourself some tough questions to say, okay, what is it about me? Like, like, what is it about the way I acted or something that I'm missing or something that happened years ago or whatever it was that allowed me to tolerate this or that allowed me to act this way and really being comfortable with that, with the discomfort of those feelings and those emotions. Now, like, what role did you play? Yeah, exactly. In that situation, because you play every role in every relationship, you play a role. So you have to look at which role you're assigned and why you're playing it. Because right. there's a payoff, but then there's another side where you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. But we always try We go back to it because there was a payoff we were getting. Did we get to play the victim? Did we get to create drama, then put our hands up and be like, I didn't do anything, you know, like, so you have to look at that. You really have to process that to get through the healing to then get on the other side and change it. So how many years into the program were you when you met your husband? 
Well, that's the thing. And people find it so funny. I actually was with my husband when I first got in the program. So he was, so, the, he was the one in your car that gave you the list of the, mm-hmm. the, the, the meetings in LA, yeah. right? Yeah. Wow, okay, he was okay. the one. That's He's awesome. the one that highlighted it. He's the one that told me to go to yeah. a meeting. He's the one that stood by me for that nine months of withdrawal. He wasn't allowed to come ask if I was okay. He couldn't fix it for me. You know, we didn't have sex for the first year of my recovery. So yeah, it, it was tough. And that's why I tell people, you know, if you're single, do this work alone. It's so much easier than doing it when you w- live with somebody, because it's very, very difficult to do that healing. But yeah, so we've been together 16 years now. And, you know, like I said, he doesn't complete me. He doesn't make me a whole person. I made myself a whole person. And that's the beautiful thing. I can be on my deathbed and know I did this work and nobody can ever take it away from me. Mm. So how did you know that, and this will hopefully help the audience be able to understand like when they know it's actually real love, like how did you, being somebody that you knew that for most of your life, you had kind of used love in a negative way to fill this hole inside of you. Like, how did you know you had reached a point in your relationship with your husband that the love was real, that it wasn't just like a love from your past? Like, how did you know that, that something switched for you? Honestly, I think it, I'm going to cry. Honestly, I think it was the moment I like truly love myself. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't with somebody because of what they could give me, how they could make me feel, you know, my self-worth. It was like, I didn't need that anymore. I looked in the mirror and I truly loved myself. I forgave myself. I made amends for the wrongs I had done. I promised never to do them again. And the moment like that was true for me, it allowed me to then truly love someone else for flaws and all. I love myself for flaws and all so I can love a human, another human being. So I think that was the moment where I was like, wow, like I'm so okay by myself, but I I choose this person. It's not because I want them or need them. I choose them. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. I'm going to cry. That's all right. You can cry on on the show. I mean, I was curious because after you sharing that, and I'd wondered because I remember you telling me the story. I remember you telling the story about the person handing you the papers and was super like optimistic about you going to these meetings. And then I also knew that your husband was was sober, but I wasn't sure if if the dots kind of connected there until until uh, just now. But yeah. I think it's important for people that are listening to this. And the reason I asked the question is because like there's a lot of people that have gone from bad relationship to bad relationship, and they've just been the serial dater and used love uh, and relationships to to fill this void. And it's like, well, how do I know when it's like, when it's real this time? And that's where I, I, you know, I think going back and working on yourself and being okay with being single or being alone or being Mm -hmm. just by yourself. And then you start to raise your standards for yourself because you start to, to really develop your own identity and like what you want, like, what kind of person do you want to be with? Like, what kind of values do you have? What kind of beliefs? What's the relationship that you kind of vision? And does that person meet that? Because I think what a lot of times what happens is most people, they're not comfortable with themselves. And society tells you a certain thing. Society says, you got to go to college, then you got to get married. You have a white picket fence. You're going to have three kids. You're going to have a golden retriever. You can do this. And you're going to feel like this all the time. You're going to feel awesome. (laughs) And the relationship's going to complete you. And it's like, you get into a marriage and you're like, wait, this is marriage. This is not butterflies. This is like, (laughs) we have to talk about paying the bills and picking up the dog poop and you know, have a religious conversation or whatever. But I think you don't know until you do the work. So what I tell people a lot when I 
help people if they're in a marriage. It's really not about the marriage you're in unless it's abusive then get out. Like if it's abusive, then I I say, but I usually tell people to stay in the marriage because it's not usually about them. It's about you. And then do that work on yourself. And you'll find out if that marriage is meant to be over time. Cause when you don't know, you're not supposed to do anything. And I think if you're single, do that work on yourself, see what you really want. Like you, like you said, and then you'll, that right person will come along. And I think the number one key is if there's drama in your life, in any relationship, that means there's work that needs to be done because you shouldn't have drama. That's like the number one sign. So that's what I tell people. If you're in a relationship, that's not abusive, stay in it. If you're single, stay single and do the work on yourself. Cause that's what really matters. Right. No, a hundred percent. I think what happens now though, is in the, in the world in the not, I'm not talking about me, but I'm saying in the world we live in, mm-hmm. we live in an instant gratification world where oh, yeah. you're able to fix things in a matter of seconds. You're lost, pull up Google maps, right? You want to find out what your friend's doing on social media, you know, go, you know, use Instagram, type in their username. You want to order yeah. something, you want to get some food delivered to you, pull out Uber eats, get DoorDash, you know, Instacart, whatever it is. So right? dangerous. This yeah. world. So dangerous. So, so you're, it's you're, creating a bunch of addicts. Yeah, you're you're, you're, pretty, you're pretty much you know training your brain to be impulsive. You're training your brain to just find these quick solutions like that instead of like actually having to do the work. And this all comes back to like, okay, you're you're wiring your brain to say, okay, I need to fix this right now. So what am I going to do? Go through a breakup. I'm going to get on Bumble. I'm going to get on Tinder. I'm going to get on mm-hmm. this or whatever. Or I'm going to go like reach out to my ex. Or I'm just going to get on Facebook. I'm going to get on Instagram and start sending a bunch of DMs. And that's just like, you know, it's just rewire or just it ingrains even deeply ingrains more deeply this toxic pattern of impulsivity. Right. And so I, I think it's really hard for people. And I think the the last kind of question I want to ask around this is there's people right now that the divorce rate is over 50%. People are, I mean, they're miserable in their relationships. In many cases, they're, they're finding themselves dating the, 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 the same person with a different face. They're finding themselves yeah. being in relationships that are, are sucking the life out of them, but they feel they just can't let go because they fear that they're going to be alone forever. They find themselves just in a, in a relationship with somebody that isn't meeting their needs and they're giving more than they're receiving. So like, what, mm-hmm. what do you tell somebody that is in a position like that, that is frustrated and they're like, man, I just can't seem to find the right person. Or am I going to be alone forever? Or if I, you know, if I'm not, if I'm single, that means I'm a loser or whatever it is. Like, what do you tell somebody in that situation? I mean, that's like the, also the million dollar question. I mean, I'm just dealing with a friend that had a fentanyl addiction and she could quit that, but she can't quit this random guy on DMs that treat her like crap. It's insanity to me. And I just keep telling her, it's like, are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? When are you done? Are you ever going to love yourself enough to, to be okay just with you? And that's the same thing I try to say to other people. Like when you keep doing this to yourself, when you keep staying in this relationship, that's unfulfilling. It's not to go find another relationship that fulfills you. It's to actually look inside and say, what in me is not giving myself enough to fulfill myself? Because we can't keep looking outside of ourselves. There's never going to be enough. We're all insatiable at this point. We're impatient or insatiable more more. And I always said that I was like an ATM, like just keep giving me more and more and more. That's what this does. And I just believe that there is a way out. 
you have to be willing to walk through the fire and let your shit burn. And what that means is like, let it all go to jump off that cliff and say, okay, I'm going to go be alone, or I'm going to get out of this situation, or I'm going to give myself a pause and not get into another relationship, or I'm not going to pick up that phone and get online and DM all those people because I feel empty and incomplete. And I want to sexualize stress, guilt, loneliness, anger, shame, fear, and envy. Like you have to have that pause to get out of the pattern, or you're going to be doing this the rest of your life. And can you imagine how sad that would be? And that's right. what I say to people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really good way of putting things. And, you know, one of the things I always say, is just like, what do you want? Like, do you want to be that person? Like in the next in 30 years where you're still yeah. miserable and dating the same types of people and just feeling like crap about yourself and just not where you want to be. And just looking back and being like, I wish I would have done the thing I know I should have done in that moment. Like, do you want to be that person or do you want to yeah. be that person that even though right now, like it sucks to, to sacrifice and, and to say, you know what, I'm going to take some time away from relationships and from dating people because it's hard. Like we're meant to be with people in community, right? Like, I, I agree, but you it, have to do it. No, exactly. That's, I mean, no, I'm saying, so, I mean, that yeah. sucks and it, and it sucks to work on yourself. It sucks to, to take space and to really look at yourself and say, okay, like what, what role did I play in, in these situations? But the payoff for that moment of suck is so much greater than 30 years from now. It's sucking even more in your life. Yeah. And it's usually you, worse. It's way worse. 30, yeah. So this too shall pass. Right? right. So you have to imagine like, okay, do I go through this heartache and pain for a year and heal myself for a year? Or do I prolong this and keep doing it for 30 years? It's like, you have to pick which, which devil you want to do. And usually, you know, to, to do the work and rip off that bandaid is 10 times better than waiting 30 years down the line. Yeah. I'm so happy you just said that. Cause I always tell people like, it's better to rip the bandaid completely off now and have that, that pain at like a level 10, just for like, yeah. you know, a short term, <laughs> like it's going to really freaking burn. It's going to hurt. But it's going to hurt. <laughs> then you can start to address that. And slowly over time, that pain comes down to an eight, comes down to a six, yeah. comes down to a four, two might, might come up a little bit here and there. But, and you might have a heartache and, it, and a heartbreak and it would go back to four, but it will right. never go to 10 again. That's the thing. Once you do that really initial deep dive in your psyche self, you will never go to that pain again. You will be able to self-regulate, feel those feelings. And it goes quicker. Like the loss goes quicker. The friendship that I've given up just this last week I'm not grieving like I did a year ago when I gave up another friendship, you know, so it just gets easier. Life gets so much easier and there's no drama and serenity and peace. And it is just so much more freeing. I'm telling you. So rip the bandaid off, <laughs> rip the bandaid off, because I think what most people do is they just rip the bandaid off just like a little bit. And they're dealing mm -hmm. like with this constant, like, like level seven or eight pain. Yeah. It's like that numbing dull entire, pain. <laughs> yeah. And they're just afraid to fully pull it off. And, you know, like then it starts to get infected and you got like the, the pain is now like that wound is now spreading over to other parts of your life. And then that's spreading over to other parts of your life. And then sure enough, your entire body is now being infected. And mean, and like the analogy I'm using is like, just say you have a, like a, like a wound on your arm and because you didn't take yeah. care of it, it infects the rest of your body. Same thing with life. If you don't just take yep. care of that one wound in a healthy way, your other relationships are going to start to fall apart. Your job your health, everything. everything. So I strongly encourage people like we've talked about on this show to, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it, it's hard 
to, to really make that sacrifice and, and do the work on yourself so that you can live a better life. So Brianne, this has been awesome. I'm glad we got to unpack these topics in the way that we did. I think people are going to get a lot out of it. I think there's going to be people that either reach out to myself or reach out to you that relate to this because this is something that's very stigmatized. I think it's very, it's as a woman. Yeah. Like, I mean, so like, what are the, what are the things, I guess the last thing I'll ask is like, why do you think it's so stigmatized and what are some things that people can do to kind of destigmatize the issue of being a sex or love addict? Well, I think the number one is talking about it. It's been yeah. so shameful and secret and, and that we should know how to have healthy relationships, but they don't teach that in schools. And we come from generations that don't discuss their feelings or, or situations that they were put in trauma or mental health issues. We didn't discuss all these things for so long. And now that, you know, normal is now to be an alcoholic or a drug addict. I'm trying to help open the doors to like sex and love addiction that we all have trouble in relationships. So let's just talk about it. Let's get it out in the open. Let's discuss like I've done these horrible things. It doesn't make me a horrible person or these horrible things were done to me and it doesn't make me a horrible person. So I just think the first step is for to talk about it. Say, call a friend and say, I keep getting in a bad relationship and I do not understand why. Like sometimes just putting it out in the world, then that, you know, you're not alone and you can start that healing process. But Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope, you know, in 10 years after discussing this, that sex and love addiction will be the norm and people discuss it and they share the tools and healthy boundaries and all of that. So that's my wish. I hope that's why I'm, I spoke out. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, because it, it is pretty stigmatized because I think anytime you raise your hand and, and you admit that you have a problem, you open up mm-hmm. this this door for people to come in and judge you and and say, well, what's wrong with you? Or you're lying or you're full of crap instead of like really taking the time to understand like what's going on. Like what, like, where did this come from? And um, like, yeah. why is this person like acting this way? Or I'm just getting to know them more as a person instead of like, like, what do they say? You hate the the disease, not the person, right? Like, that's the thing. Exactly. It's like an understanding that people have, they, there's an illness there in, in a way that people have gotten accustomed to and there's trauma and there's pain and there's things going on physiologically that you just, you just don't understand and just allowing people, loving people for where they're at and allowing them the space to be where they are and then work on themselves. So Brianne, this has been awesome. Where can people, if they want to connect with you on social media or they want to buy your book or listen to your podcast, where can they do that? Well, you can follow me at the Brianne Davis on Instagram. I try to answer all my DMs. I'll send you information if you need it. There's 40 questions you can fill out for Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. If you get more than five of them correctly, you might have a problem. They're very easy questions. Or you can go to secretlifenovel.com. You can get my book on Amazon or Secret Life Novel or the Audible Worldwide, where I narrate it and act it out, which was complete torture to do. And then there's Secret Life Podcast, where I help reveal other people's secrets, the, you know, shameful things we are keeping hidden, funny secrets and really dark, dark, dark secrets. So yeah, reach out if you have any questions or, you know, you want to say hi. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I think people are going to definitely want to reach out and and say hi. And I think they're going to get a lot out of this because again, this is something I really haven't covered in depth too much on the show. And it's something that's, it's important because I think there's a lot of people that that struggle with this either out in the open or in silence. So yeah. I appreciate you coming on. And for those listening, what I want you to do, just like I always ask you to do is to take a screenshot and share a take, share a takeaway, tag Brianne, tag myself. Maybe it was something that 
she said with her story. It was something that she said about love addiction, or maybe it was something she said about like how to, how to navigate your way out. Maybe it was something she said about the relationship with her husband, whatever it was, tag her, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.